Well, that, that sure is fun to see some of us on the other side of the world really doing what we're doing, right? That's, that's the amazing thing about the church. It's this living community of faith that uh, God is growing and changing and using uh, all over the world. And uh, what a beautiful, beautiful sight. Well, if you will do this for me, if you'll open your Bibles to Isaiah 12, we're going to, uh, to get into the text. And what we're, what we're doing is we're coming to the end of the first major section of this book. So as, as we've said from the beginning, 66 chapters uh, in this book. And uh, so it is broken up into segments. And the first one is the first 12 chapters. So we're coming in to the conclusion of that. It's the shortest chapter uh, but in some ways, maybe one of the most profound, as I've kind of been reading through this, it, it's just sort of weird. It's, it's fuzzy, it's foggy, it's like I'm really going on faith that what we're going to read and talk about and look at today is true. And you may think, well, well gosh, a good Christian ought to believe that, right? But this is so far out there that this is a place where we really, we're not looking backward at what's happened. We're looking forward and we're seeing a day that I don't know how far off it is, but it changes everything. Changes everything about how we see life today. So let me just kind of put this in the context of this first segment. Uh, Remember the first five chapters were a little bit of an introduction, sort of setting the table about who, who are we talking about here? What's going on? What, what time in the history of Israel are we facing? And then we get to chapter 6 where Isaiah gets his spectacular call into ministry in the presence of God in that throne room. And in many ways, what we're going to read today is, is a repetition of sorts for the nation that Isaiah experienced all by himself in the presence of a holy God. So, so really important transition there. And then beginning in chapter seven, Isaiah begins to fulfill his ministry as a prophet and he begins to sort of cast some vision forward and, and sets the table for all that God is going to do in and through Israel as they go forward. Uh, remember we met a self-reliant king named Ahaz. And remember that there is this threat of Assyria that's coming to the northern and the southern kingdoms. So this is like gigantic, huge empire, right? And they just want to take over the world and they're coming. We found out later that that's God's intention, that Assyria is actually going to be an instrument of discipline. But Ahaz gets an incredible opportunity, a beautiful chance to trust God instead of himself. He must have been from Sweden, according to what Jeff said, because he decides that rather than just abandon himself to the care, protection, and provision of God, he forms an alliance with none other than Assyria. And so because of that, he sets Israel, I'm sorry, Judah, the southern kingdom, on a course with discipline. It's coming. We, We don't at this point know when, or exactly how, but Isaiah is painting a very painful picture for this uh, group of God's 
chosen people. Now, in the midst of uh, Isaiah assuring that judgment is coming, he also is mingling in these little pictures of hope along the way. And don't we need that? Even when life is really hard, when we're suffering or we're being corrected or whatever it is, we need to have these little moments, these glimpses of hope. And certainly chapter 12 will do that for us as we get into it. Now, uh, beginning in chapter 10, so the end of chapter 10, all of 11, and now all of 12, that's a little bit of a section within the larger segment. And in that, there is this theme that emerges around a phrase that you might have noticed. It says, in that day. Did you guys notice that? It's in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 20, then verse 27. Then in chapter 11, it's in verses 10 and 11. And then we're going to see it again here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 4. And what Isaiah does with each of those phrases is he starts with the point of reference as a near future reference. And then he looks a little bit further out to a distant future. And then he ultimately gets to the end of time. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. So that makes this whole following Isaiah a little challenging, right? Because we're trying to always get our bearings. Is, is he talking about like next week? Or is he talking about 200 years from now? Or is he talking about literally the consummation of God's redemptive plan? Which is it? Here it's at the very end of time. Now, Isaiah announced the judgment of Assyria that was coming. He talks about the eventual return of Judah. He doesn't say exactly when that's going to happen. That's the, the more distant future. He talks about, remember, the arrival of the righteous king, the branch that Jeff spoke about. He talked about a reversal of the curse. Now that, now that means we're moving into that end times kind of category, when there's a reversal of all the curse and consequences that came from the fall. And then we ultimately come to the final return of a remnant of Israel to Zion under the reign of the Messiah. That's when all things will be made new. Now specifically, um, as we come to the end of Israel's history, what we're talking about is, uh, in theological terms, eschatology. You've probably heard that phrase before. Um, books like Revelation falls into that category. So we are, by God's grace, given a picture of a day that we may not even live to see, but we're called to do something with what we see in the scriptures. It is meant to affect us. It's interesting um, with Jews, they still celebrate, and there's going to be some connections here with the Exodus, where there's actually going to be some phrases taken from the book of Exodus. But um, Israel, the, the Jews of that day, were called to begin a feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, that whole thing was built around the haste with which they had to leave Egypt. You guys remember that. It was like they got to get out of town fast. They didn't get to leaven their bread. And so they began to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here's what's interesting. Almost 3,000 years later, one of the songs that Israel still sings is the song we're going to read today. 
So for the Jew, this is still very much a picture of what they expect somewhere out there. For them, it will be the first arrival. In, in their frame of reference, they're thinking this will be the first arrival of the Messiah. We know that it's the second. But isn't that interesting that we share this in common in terms of how things will all come to a conclusion? So, why do you suppose Isaiah brings this vision to Judah right before their discipline? Does that seem weird to you? That He's telling them, here's what's coming. You made a wrong turn, a really wrong turn. And the consequences are on their way. And then he pauses for just this moment and paints this picture of a time that probably most of them will never see. I guess we could ask the same question. Why does God give us the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation? Why does he paint this picture of the end of times? What is the point of telling us the end of the story if it isn't to shape how we live the rest of our story? Like how you live today must be informed by how all things come to an end. Otherwise, you're no different than any atheist who has ever walked the planet because the end is the grave and that's it. So what do you have to live for? except for some temporary things right here in the moment. What we know and believe about the future powerfully affects how we live in the present. Promises of reconciliation and restoration and resurrection and reward, those things are real. They're way out there. Like I said, they're kind of fuzzy, kind of ambiguous, hard to get our arms around, but they're as real as what we're seeing right here and now. And our belief, our hope, our confidence in all of those things should change the way we live today. How we relate to our friends, our family, our job, our future. Now, the interesting thing about chapter 12 is that it doesn't so much focus on God's activity, it just assumes it. The focus is actually on the attitude and the activities of Israel, of the people that are going to be there. What we're going to read about is how do these people respond to the end of time? What, what do they do when they get there? What would we do if we got there? How would we respond? That's the focus of chapter 12. And the prophet told the people of Judah how they would respond to the finality of God's redemptive plan. And it can be assumed, now, now the immediate context is a focus on Israel. But because of everything that's happened in all of history, because Christ did come and he was crucified, buried, and rose again, because of all of that, we are joined into... Uh, the, the people of Israel were called the children of Abraham, if you remember back from our study of Romans. So whatever Israel is going to experience here, other than a literal return to Jerusalem, that's going to be unique to them, a fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. Beyond that, we get to experience every bit of this. 
And this is meant to inform our vision of the future as much as it is theirs. So here's the big idea for the morning. Our joy today, and there's a lot of joy packed into this passage. Our joy today is fueled by our view of God's redemptive destination. If you're struggling with joy, and I wondered about like having a, a joy quotient kind of quiz or something for you so that you could come in like, I know everybody's smiling and dressed up and all that's nice, but like I really wondered, as you came in this morning, would you say you got some real joy? I hope you do. But, but you know, there are some days that are harder than others. And there are days when we really struggle to believe some of this stuff. There are days when the difficulty of life, suffering, pain, hardship, instruction, correction, all of that stuff, it can be a little bit overwhelming. And we can feel our joy begin to wane. And so that's where a passage like this, this is a go-to place for you and for me in those kinds of days. This is a place where we can renew our vision for God's redemptive destination. So let's, uh, let's pick up our Bibles, and I'm going to start reading in chapter 11, verse 15. This is the tail end of uh, what Isaiah is describing as the return of the remnant to Jerusalem. This was at the end of Jeff's passage last week, but it leads right into what he's going to say in chapter 12. So beginning in chapter 11, verse 15, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. Does that sound a little bit familiar? Kind of like the Exodus? So, so the picture here is that God is making a way for his people to return to their rightful place in Zion. Verse 16, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Chapter 12, verse 1, you will say in that day, so this day of returning, this day when everything gets resolved, that's the day that Isaiah has in mind. So he's saying to that remnant who is returning, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy, Isaiah says to the remnant, you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim his name, is that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 
takes the happiest of days and imports it into the hardest of days. They're about to be disciplined, but he gives this incredible word and vision of hope. So let's just work through this. Your outline in your, uh, in your bulletin there is just the text, and we're just going to work right through it and see what is it that Isaiah is helping this remnant to envision. First of all, you will say in that day, that, that uh, pronoun you there is singular, and that's important because in the latter half of this song, uh, it's going to be plural, and it's going to change uh, who's talking and who they're talking to. So uh, you could say, um, each of you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. So they're going to they're gonna come into this, this place of redemptive destination, and the first thing they're going to say is thanks. And it, it, it kind of strikes me, you know, I like... How much gratitude do we have going on in our lives, day in and day out? Because here's what's going to happen. We'll get there, and that will be the first thing off our tongue. Because we will have arrived. Like, it'll be done. God will have fulfilled his promises perfectly. And we'll say, thank you. That'll just be as natural as breathing. And that gratitude will flow out of two very important things. First of all, we'll see how deserving we were of God's wrath. Like you come into the presence of God and you, you, it's very stark. Again, we saw this in Isaiah 6. It's very obvious that we deserve the wrath of God. We have no argument with God about that. Fully deserving. And at the very same time, we will be overcome by how merciful he has been as our judge. You guys remember the picture? You probably heard this at some point in your Christian life, the, the idea of the, of the judge uh, rendering a verdict, right? And, and rendering the sentence and then leaving his uh, seat and taking off his robe and then saying, I'll, I'll take it for him. I'll take it for her. Just put the punishment on me so that he or she can go free. That's the beautiful picture that we'll see when we're ushered into this redemptive destination. I love what David writes in Psalm 103. He that is God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We'll give thanks because we'll, we'll enter into this place that we know in and of ourselves we could never belong but we're brought there by the grace and mercy of God. We'll be full of gratitude. We'll also see that the justice of God will have been perfectly served. In other words, this God, this faithful, true, merciful, gracious God, he can't just dismiss sin. He can't just say, ah, you know what, I... It's okay, we'll just just let that one slide. 
No, he will pour out every bit, every last drop of wrath on our substitute so that we can be set free. That will be what allows us into that precious, holy place. And we'll say thanks. That sounds almost trite, but it it will just be, I think, repetitious. Like we'll never be able to thank God enough for the incredible work he has done. Verse two, you will also say, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. If you guys remember, if you've been tracking with us through this series, what we hear, what we've heard is uh, King Ahaz saying, I'm gonna trust in myself. I'm afraid of Assyria. And so rather than trusting in my God, I'm gonna trust in me and I'm actually even gonna trust in them. How strange is that? And I'm gonna be my own salvation instead of having God as my salvation. This is a beautiful flipping of outlook and perspective and attitude. Uh, This remnant will say, the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is where we get a quote from Exodus 15.2. This is from the song of Moses, and I I want you to picture this. I have to do this because otherwise this is just sort of cognitive or heady, but I just want you to imagine the people of Israel after 400 years of enslavement in Egypt where they are ruthlessly oppressed. And finally, the Lord is delivering them and the last plague. Do you remember what that was? The, what we know is the Passover. They're, they're supposed to, to kill a, an unblemished lamb and spread the blood over the doorpost. And that's a sign of their faith in God to pass over his judgment upon them. Like, isn't that strange? Like, so that's all I gotta do. I just gotta get a little blood and paint it over my, my doorpost and I'm gonna be okay? And then in the middle of the night, they hear screams of terror throughout Egypt because the firstborn is dead in every household that didn't do that. And then you're set free. Pharaoh says, get out of here, go. I don't ever want to see you again. He even asks for a blessing from Moses as they're headed out of town. They're told to plunder the Egyptians. Like literally they're leaving saying, hey, you got any gold or silver or just anything of value that I can take with me? And they're going, sure, yeah, take it all. Just please leave. Then they come to the Red Sea. They've got Egypt behind them, bearing down, kind of like Assyria, and an ocean in front of them. Nowhere to go. And they begin to think, the Lord brought us out here to die. And lo and behold, the water just parts. Like it's just a dry pathway straight through. They're saved. And then they see the judgment of God. 
come upon the mighty military of Egypt. And then they sing this song. You feel that? Do you ever sing that song? Have you seen God deliver you? The degree to which you do is the degree to which you will sing this song and you will feel the joy of the Lord. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what you face, regardless of what you fear, you will trust in the Lord. You will not be afraid. He will be your strength and he will be your song. We'll say that one day, but you know what? We can say that today. Well, verse 3 is kind of a centerpiece of this song. Isaiah moves out of kind of quoting what the remnant will say when they arrive, and he, he just sort of steps back and says, hey, let me tell you something. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And r- remember what region of the world they live in. <laughs> it's, oh, is it arid? Is that the right way to describe that? Um, that, that phrase is a stark transformation for how, from how Israel has been described elsewhere. Listen to Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. And we've seen that again and again and again. And, and how does he describe himself? The fountain of living waters. And having forsaken the fountain of living waters, he says, they hewed out cisterns or water reservoirs for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's King Ahaz's plan. But in this day, In the day when when God makes all things new and brings his redemptive plan to its consummation, they will draw water from the wells of salvation. I wonder if that phrase might have been something Jesus had in mind when he was talking to the woman at the well. You remember that story? He says, everyone who drinks of this water, the water that he's offering, the water of the well there will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, Jesus says, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. That's the picture that Isaiah is painting. In John 7 Jesus says, on the the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The wells of salvation. Remember in verse 2, said, God is my salvation. So we could think of this as you are going to draw from the wells of God. 
And, and just think about how infinite God is in all of his attributes, in all of his goodness. And then think about the full scope of our salvation. Justification, when we are made right with God once and for all. Sanctification, this progressive work of transformation where we're being conformed into the image of his son. All of the time, in any circumstance, God is doing that beautiful work. And then glorification, a day when, believe it or not, you and I are going to be completely transformed without sin, perfectly righteous as if we had never sinned. And that will be a literal reality, not just a positional one, but a real situation for us in the presence of a holy God. That is the, the well, or those are the wells from which we can draw, not just when it's all said and done, but today. And don't you think that would be a great source of joy? Regardless of your circumstances, you could celebrate having been justified, sanctified, and glorified by a gracious Father. Well, after that, in verse 4, Isaiah shifts his attention. He uses the phrase again, you will say in that day, but now the you is plural. And uh, this moves from an individual expression to a corporate expression. And what's happening here is really even a picture of what we did this morning. Remember when we were singing a minute ago? Do you guys ever find yourself, it's like you and the screen, and you're like, I'm singing to a screen. That sounds a little weird, right? But Here's what we're doing. We're actually singing to and over one another. The words that we sing are a reminder of what is right and good and true and life-changing. We're celebrating, we're magnifying, we're glorifying our God together in community. That's the picture that Isaiah paints here. Not only will you and I give individual thanksgiving and honor to God. But we're going to start to look horizontally at each other. And we're beginning to say things like, hey, you, give thanks to the Lord. Like we're going to remind each other because there's a lot to be thankful for. Call upon his name instead of relying upon yourself. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Like we're not meant to be a holy huddle. We're meant to be a megaphone to a world in need of God. And proclaim his name, that his name is exalted. There is no other name. We sang last week, remember? There are no rivals. (laughs) There are no peers. There's no equals to God. He is above it all. The remnant will thank the Lord and will call on each other to let the world know what God has done. It's community at its finest. And I honestly hope after we're studying this passage that you'll never view this time that we have together the same way again. I hope that when you come in here that you'll have this anticipation. Like this is, it's a, (laughs) it's, it's a, tainted view for sure. It's a limited view, but this is a taste of what eternity will be like where we get to sing and magnify the greatness of our God. Verse five, 
once again, the community talking to itself. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. It is nothing less than our privilege to sing the Lord's praises to the ends of the earth in light of the endless glory he has displayed in all that he has made. Like, let's not forget that God made it all. Not just you and not just me, but it all. All of the universe, all the stars and the, the moon and the earth and the animals and the vegetables and not, like all of that. He made it all. And when we honor him, when we magnify him, we're not, we're not creating his greatness. We're just acknowledging it. We're just trumpeting it to the world around us. When we do this, when we join our voices with verse 5, we join with the seraphim in uh, chapter 6. Remember that? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. David writes in Psalm 24, lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. We, we were created for this. This is our highest calling. You and I have no purpose that even begins to compare with our declaration of the greatness of our God. And here's what I can tell you. You will experience real joy Joy that it can endure any circumstance of life to the extent that you are willing to fulfill this purpose. Because you'll find your joy in him, the one that you're celebrating. Well, Isaiah finally uh, breaks from his quotation, his song in the end, and says to uh, the people of Israel, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. One writer said, joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. And that is the gift that Isaiah tells Israel to celebrate in the end here, is the very presence of God. And once again, that can become such a familiar idea, but just think about the God of the universe taking up residence in you and me, sinful, selfish, self-absorbed, self-serving, self-reliant people. And he comes by grace and takes up residence and calls us the temple of the living God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that worth shouting about and singing about? Yeah. We probably ought to be a lot more vocal than we are as God's people because we have a lot to celebrate in light of who he is. Again, here's our big idea. 
Our joy today is fueled by our view of God's redemptive destination. And this is it. There's other places that describe it maybe more fully, uh, more extensively, but this is it. This is where we're headed. This is the, the, the end of the road where we get to spend all of eternity with our gracious Father. So what is it that holds you back from singing the song of the redeemed? I just came across it. You saw the title there, Oh Happy Days. I came across this, this uh, YouTube video of the gospel original of Oh Happy Days. You guys remember that? Oh happy day. Yeah, come on. Oh happy. I'm not going to sing. Okay. <laughs> Jeff and I do not need to be singing. But you know what? That song, it just goes on and on and on, but it is glorious. Because the, the reason that day is so happy is because Jesus washed my sins away. And I get to be with him forever. Oh, happy day the happiest of days. And I can bring that into the hardest of days and feel genuine joy. Commentator John Oswalt says, song is the natural expression of the spirit which is free. And no spirit is so free as the one which has discovered that its destiny is not dependent upon its striving but rather upon the infinite power of the Almighty. <clears throat> Knowing the end of the story is intended to shape how we live the rest of the story. And here's how it ends. Judgment is not God's last word. Read the book of Revelation. And in chapter 20, <laughs> you're going to read some rough stuff. But then you get to 21, you'll see a new heaven and a new earth. You'll see a new Jerusalem, and you'll see the river of the water of life. That's the final word. That is the word that we celebrate. So keep your joy today by living with the end in mind. Keep your joy today by living with the end in mind. And that will change your life. Let's take a few minutes and uh, let this sink in a little bit. Song of the Redeemed. Um, maybe you're still learning the lyrics. Maybe it feels unfamiliar. Maybe your heart if you're just honest, just doesn't quite feel completely engaged, that's okay. I, that's a great place for you to come to the one who gave us the song to begin with and just ask him to, to fuel that song in you, to help you see as clearly as you've ever seen and then to let that song make its way out everywhere you are.
take a moment and uh, just ask the Lord to, to use this however he sees fit. And then uh, I'll pray for us in just a moment.